2: 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
0: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is actress and comedian, Sandra Bernhardt. Her father was a proctologist, and her mother an abstract artist, and that combination formed her worldview. For many, Sandra Bernhardt is a comedian, and she began her career at comedy clubs in L.A. in the 1970s. Soon she caught the attention of the likes of Paul Mooney, who became a comedy mentor. She calls herself a postmodern entertainer, But you should never underestimate Sandra Bernhardt's career as a legit actress. In her 1983 breakout role in Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, Bernhardt held her own opposite Robert De Niro and Jerry Lewis. Bernhardt says she never wanted to settle for just telling jokes. She always wanted more, a bigger stage, a louder voice, a wider audience. Born in Flint, Michigan, Sandra Bernhardt was raised in a conservative Jewish family. She moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, and spent eight months on a kibbutz out of high school. She moved to L.A. in 1974 at age 19 and enrolled in beauty school.
3: My entire higher education cost $340. My dad wrote a check and left town. I was like, you got off easy, my dear dad. And then I was on my own. I got, I got a couple of jobs, and then I landed on my feet at 351 North Cannon Drive. At Sia, C-I-A, Sia Hair Salon. That was the name of one of the um, um, hair guys who owned the salon. And I was there for five and a half years. And, I, and I, a year later, I started performing at night at clubs.
0: What was the Jewish identity thing for you? You growing up in Flint and you moved to, to, Scottsdale? to Scottsdale, how old? Um, Ten. And you grew up in a very conservative Jewish household. Yes. So was it understood you'd go do the kibbutz thing at some point and go to Israel for at well, some no, point? no, no, no,
3: no. I had I just had tons of family who when they left Russia they went to Israel and we came to America. So my brothers had all gone to work on kibbutzim and in the 70s it was like it was a great fun thing to do after high school and they welcomed everybody's you know, um, help and they didn't pay you anything, but they fed you and clothed you. And And what did you
0: do? What were you doing? uh,
3: I did several things. I, I worked, uh, picking, um, grapefruits and oranges. And then my main job was working in the slaughterhouse. It was called the mash And I was on the line, the assembly line, the chickens come down, everybody took out different parts. My main thing was pulling out the, um, oh, the lungs. Actually, I, I vacuumed lungs out of chickens. I know you look at me. Eight and months think, of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Of yeah. picking fruit. Yeah. Something very clean and wholesome and sweet, and then ripping the lungs out, of, vacuuming yeah. the lungs out of the well, chickens. Well, you
3: just did what they asked you to do, and if, of course, if you were if that was something that was you know not comfortable for you, they wouldn't force you to do it. You work like from seven to like twelve, and then you have the afternoons off, and you stay up late and hang out with all the other you know kids from all over the world, and you get to know people and. Have fun, and you know it was like an Enjoy international yourself. experience. It yeah. was incredible. You're
0: working yourself to death.
3: No, 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 no. Because
0: you're one of the great cavaliers of all time in my mind, and I could just see you turning to somebody going, "How much longer am I going to gonna, gonna have to vacuum out these lungs?" I mean,
3: I never complained. I'm a worker. I like to work, and when I have to do it, I do it. I like, I like manual labor. You do? Yeah, I like to clean. I like to do laundry. I like to wash dishes. So if, I mean, if everything at the bottom fell out, I'd be fine. Why do you think that is?
0: Why do you think you like? I mean, I'm taking you seriously. You like manual. What is it about? Because
3: it's 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 freeing. You know, it's nobody's there to tell you to do it. You I mean, you, you know, if you're doing something right, you know, if you're cleaning a toilet or you know, a shower or a sink or, or washing a dish and drying it. I mean, it's just it's it's liberating. You're doing a load of laundry, yeah. and it does. It's t- it's it's meditative.
0: It's funny you say that because my wife is constantly a. Uh, 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 badgering me because we'll have dinner and we'll cook dinner or even if we order food in and plate it for everybody and eat uh here in the city or out on long island where we live and when we're done i'll say to everybody get out of this room take your wine <laughs> bottles and your glasses and go in the other room and i want to be left completely alone here to clean this kitchen and there's a yeah. tremendous sense of,
4: of relaxation
0: when it's over and the kitchen's gleaming uh, and all the dishes are put away and the i feel What go. is it about people who need to occupy themselves that way well, to I take think your it, mind off things, I
3: think it's a, I think it's an escape from, um, you know, the intellectual. And I, I,
0: I I I go beta. I don't think so much. Yeah. I'm just gonna yeah i just going to relax. It's very relaxing.
3: It is. It's totally... Like, I'm
0: focused on that.
3: It's a freeing experience.
0: You come back from the kibbutz and you go to L.A.
3: Yeah, To L.A. Lotus
0: Weinstock, Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney. Mooney. Oh, the, how the, do they influence you?
3: Well, they believed in me. And they thought I was the funniest thing they'd ever seen, and you know, just thought I was adorable and fresh and crazy, and you know, nobody had seen a five foot ten, you know, nineteen year old, you know, wearing a, a safari jacket, safari shorts, some lace up espadrilles, a little hat, you know, just full of like vim and v- vigor and and piss and vinegar. And I was just like a I was like a wild a wild card.
0: What's the first club you got? You did open mic.
3: This was at the Ye Little Club in Beverly Hills. They had open mic on Monday night. It's also where Joan Rivers used to break in her new material back in the day. So I got up and I did my first joke. I'm I'm a medium. I understand you're a small. You're an extra large. <laughs> um, that was my first joke, and then it just kind of went on from there. And then I started incorporating my singing, you know, which was really my first love. I really wanted to be. I really wanted to be another Bette Midler. I wanted to be like a wild singing edgy crazy entertainer a postmodern entertainer which i became in my own way i did at least a year of you know the little club or um, rusty's bagel this guy named rusty blitz he was actually had a little part in um young frankenstein and he had a little storefront where he'd serve bagels and you'd get up and do your five minutes. So there were a lot, lots, and lots of little clubs like that, and then within a year, I started going to um, the improv and the comedy store, and um, that's where you know I started getting my chops together, and um, you know, and then I started getting, you know, I did the Richard Pryor TV show because of Paul Mooney. Yeah, he did a short-lived show on NBC, it lasted what was about that like? six episodes. What you know it was sketches. I was a regular. And you can see it. It's, it's available. People come up all, all, quite often and say, "Oh well, you you know, adorable." Then we did a roast. We, we roasted Richard. I, I was one of the people who roasted him. So that was like that. You know, again, just thrown into like this major situation. And I just, you know, you just learn how to stand on your own two feet. You know, it, was, it didn't really involve acting school, or you know, I never really studied anything formally. It was just all my sort of, fa- you know, um, fascination and imagination that you know carried me through at every different juncture.
0: But when you're with someone like Pryor and you're young, describe to me: Is Pryor calling all the shots, or was some producer, writer, no, director doing everything? No,
3: it was it was Bert Sugarman, I think, was the executive producer, which was I don't know. It was just sort of like incongruous, you know, some of the people involved with it. But Paul Mooney was the head writer. Right. Um, Robin Williams, it was his first big gig. It was like a lot of people that familiar faces um, now. And so Paul would write little parts for us or a little, you know, in the sketches. And we just did it. And how was Pryor? And Pryor was just like... he Supportive? Was just, oh, beyond. What? He would just stand there and like laugh at everybody. You know, he he was a fish out of water. He didn't like that format at all. He didn't like being under the thumb of NBC or being censored. Mm. You know, so that's why it only lasted for six shows.
0: <laughs> that's I the, can't fucking do this no nah, more. This yeah, this is
3: this is the sad news. Pryor is very bottled up. You wouldn't see much emotion from Richard Pryor. Uh, it was all done in you know the dressing room.
0: But he was very supportive of you. Oh and yeah, the other yeah. And
3: always, he just he loved to laugh at at young, up and coming entertainers. Totally not threatened. No need to control. If he had a suggestion, he would whisper it to Paul. It was very, all very subtle. Mm-hmm.
0: And then what happens after that?
3: Well, you know, I'm just, I'm performing during the day. I'm doing gigs. I'm, you know, I'm still not, yeah. How, how
0: would you say your performances are changing?
3: Well, I mean, they they opened a room at the comedy store called the, uh, the Belly Room, which was for only women performers. So it was the woman who owned it, um, Mitzi Shore, who's still around, Fairly. She was very like, she was was like a segregationist. You know, she separated the men from the women and she loved the men. She didn't like the women. She didn't think women really belonged in comedy. And it was all very strange. So, but I got a lot of confidence in this belly room because people came to see women and they weren't expecting you to do male driven comedy. And it was just different. So it, it freed me up to to do what I did, which was very completely post-feminist. I, I refused to be self-deprecating and nobody had done that yet. No, no woman comedian performer hadn't done something where she was like, oh, you know, I'm so ugly or I'm this or yeah, I'm that. in single. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was really young. So it wasn't like, I didn't feel like, what am I, why would I do that? You know, I'm, I'm, hap- I'm hot. I'm hot. I I'm got happening, it all. you know? Yeah. That was my <laughs> attitude. And of course I you know, was always nervous, like everybody starting out, but. I covered it up by being this sort of character, you know, this super erudite, sophisticated, groovy, swinging, you know, chick. on top of it, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, all over it. Yeah. So that's that was the the direction I kept going in, and I did I did a couple other little movies, little parts, little, little bit, little this, and then in 1981 I auditioned for um, the King of Comedy. Um, the Robert De Niro uh, Jerry Lewis Martin Scorsese vehicle along with a lot of other people and you know at that point I was like I didn't even think about it I just did it they wanted somebody who could improvise which I did and after like about a month or two of auditioning several several auditions for at different levels um, I got the part and that was you know a game changer for me and after that I never I didn't have to perform at the comedy clubs anymore I would I would did go- you miss that no, I didn't. didn't I never wanted to go back to the comedy club cuz I didn't like that scene. You didn't. No. That wasn't for Sandy. You were too cool. That wasn't for <laughs> Sandy. No. No. Then I could start you know playing really, rock, rock and roll clubs and doing concerts and You like that. Even if it's just like a a, a rock and roll club, it has a different connotation cuz then I have my band and I can sing and do all the things that I all do right. cuz I wanted to do a whole performance, a whole evening, not just like tell
0: tell jokes. Tell jokes. Right. You say that Scorsese and the people involved with the film, I guess, uh, auditioned several people for quite a while to get down to casting you. What was your interaction with him? Did he work with you a lot? Did you go in and see him a lot? Yeah. Work the material with him a lot? Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, I, my initial audition was for Siscom and the casting person, right. and she was like visibly stunned. By me. And I didn't know what that meant. But she said, I think Marty needs to see you. Yeah. So she had me back the next day. And and, and Deborah Winger was driving a Volkswagen. And I would known Deborah Winger because she was um, a waitress at the Improv. And she said, Sandy, it's me, Debbie. And I looked, I said, oh, my God, hi, Debbie. So then I got nervous because I thought well, she must be up for the film, too. She, like, I'm sure she was. It was up at the um, um, Chateau Marmont. That was where all the auditions in L.A. were at the Chateau. So the next day I went back and I read for Marty, and he loved it. And then he brought me back to read for him and Bobby De Niro. And, yeah, they just kept – oh, yeah. And then they came to see me perform at the comedy store. And uh, Richard Belzer um, did a little improv with me, which was really sweet. Because then they could see how I interacted, like, with somebody who was, you know, sort of like the movie was going to be. And they love that. And then I didn't hear from anybody for a month. And then they um, flew me to New York. And I stayed at the Mayflower Hotel, which is now, you know, that big...
0: 15 Central Park yeah, West. Yeah.
3: Where it was all happening. The Mayflower Hotel. Sydney
0: Biddle Barrows was her name. Yes. The Mayflower Madam. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know that from personal <laughs> experience. I don't have her business card in my
3: Well, but the attache, Mayflower Hotel a lot was happening. I can tell hotel, you that yeah. much. I mean, every actor they sold stayed the con- there.
0: Remember that they sold the contents of the hotel. They tore down the hotel. And before they did, they offered people a chance to come in and buy the contents. They sold, like an estate auction. Well, the drapery and the furniture I mean, was crazy. I it mean,
3: was, it was the worst stuff in the world. I mean, it was like from, you know, yeah. from, from a million years ago. But it was it was a fun place to be, and then that was the audition where I was going to read with um, Jerry Lewis,
0: and did that, you, and
3: did you? Oh yeah.
0: And what was that like?
3: Oh, I I think it was great, but I was that that was the only time I was really nervous in the whole audition process because it was Jerry Lewis, and he's an intimidating yeah figure. Sure. You know, and he's you kind know, of
0: a no, no, When I met him, he's kind of a no nonsense guy.
3: Well, he's no nonsense, and he knows everything. You know, he's like the know it all. Well, of when you, times.
0: But, it's, but it's interesting how you, um, I don't consider myself a comedian, but I've done a lot of comedial, uh, you know, yeah, comedy programming of and course. so forth. And I'm around these eighth degree black belt yeah. comedy people. Right. And some of them are, it's almost inconceivably dry and very droll when you meet them in person. And, yes. and their own persona, a couple I'm thinking of, is very antic and very nutty and silly. And then you see them backstage and they're like, you know, uh, you'd think that you're talking to... Uh, a politician, yeah, the prime minister of England, and, right? And you're like on a state <laughs> visit or something. They're very proper and buttoned up, and, and no jokes or whatever. And he strikes me that way. Oh, that he's, he's, very...
3: he's pompous, imperious, right?
0: Very imperious. Is what oh. I, I would
3: think. Well, yeah, I mean, it's clear everything's been said that there is to say about Jerry Lewis up until now. I mean, he's still, he's still unbelievable. He's still that same person, and. He hadn't really worked with a woman like me before. He don't, you know, he'd use people like Stella, Stella Stevens, that her name, as sort of like, you know, a, a foil, a foil. Yeah. you know, women weren't there to actually yeah. hold their own. They're
0: Margaret Dumont, uh huh, and that woman from the from the Marx Brothers, so yes, the, 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 yes. Straight, the, the foil, exactly. But when you're there with him, um, you know, that's Marty. In and around. I mean Raging Bullet came out a little bit before that, just a couple years before they came in like in nineteen eighty or something. You know, that's Marty right cresting at the peak of his power right. when he's making this film with you. Yeah. And I'm wondering, does De Niro and Marty obviously have and I can't even define it, their own legendary kind of battery between yes. the two of them and how they yes, work and very much so. the unspoken and the spoken and so forth. Uh-huh. And um but I wonder does someone like Lewis to see defer to Scorsese did no. Scorsese. He didn't.
3: No, Scorsese deferred to him. He
0: wanted. He had to be he he would, very would, self-directing.
3: Yeah, self-directing, but also Marty would like. I, I guess humor him in a certain way and say, "Well, why do, what do you think about this scene?" And and so he had to be
0: handled a certain way.
3: Yeah, so Jerry was made to feel like he was bringing his expertise.
0: He was the eminence.
3: The perfectly said.
0: But the scenes, and I, I mean, I've been in films before with people and some of it, this, um, dichotomy with them, I don't want to say tension, but Mm -hmm. some of that uh, uh, relationship with them uh, resulted in a really good film or stage play, and sometimes it didn't. People always say, oh, you you this kind of crackle that you create. There's a magic that happens, or there's something that happens uh, that's palpable on screen. I don't always buy that. However, you and he, it is mesmerizing. Thank you. It's mesmerizing. You and he on screen together, I can't think of who's going to break a glass and shove the jagged edge (laughs) in whose neck first.
3: Yes. Well, that's you know that was because I just stayed in the moment and as intimidated as I was, I didn't. I didn't. I I, I, I didn't relent. I held my ground, which you know.
0: Was he expecting you to relent? You think was he expecting you to kind I, of break I th- down? I think and, he
3: was hoping. Yeah, you know? you'd be
0: weaker on the film than yeah. he wanted you to be. Yeah, that's isn't that amazing. Well, and
3: that and then that kept you know rising the temperature. You know, for him, I was respectful and slightly in awe of Jerry Lewis. Right. For sure.
0: You're in a movie and you more than hold your own. I mean, you are right up there delivering the goods in the film with Robert De Niro.
3: Yeah, it's crazy. And
0: Jerry Lewis in this quirky, weird movie that everybody loves. I know who knows that movie and loves you in it. And the weirdness of it, you know, you and him, everybody all taped up and everything and the way you had all that uh, done. Uh, what happens after that? I mean, does everything just change for you? Well, it
3: did change for me. But at the same time, I don't know if I was savvy enough at that time to like, things were different. I mean, now you're like, young actors are like, they're plugged in, like, they, you know, they've got their machinery all all ready to go. they got a team. And back then, it was just sort of more like, wow, I just did this great movie, but now I want to kind of just go out in the road and do my shows. And, you know, things, yeah, things, of course, were at a different level, you know, but looking back had had it been now I guess I probably would have been more craven in a certain aggressive. way aggressive yeah but I feel like I feel like p- young actors are they're just so like everything is just like a mach- like I said a machinery like somebody grabs you and there's you know there's the the publicist and then there's the agent and there's the manager and then there's the the handler and then there's the, you know and everybody's just like kept you know in a certain sort of Position where they're not really free to like move and be like totally
0: outrageous or groovy, you know. Well, I think that there there's certainly people who, in my lifetime, myself included, who, and this is a big swing here. I don't, I don't necessarily think you're going to might agree, but I tend to think that years ago, when I was first making films, and I don't mean small parts in films in the '80s, but playing lead roles in films in the '90s, you do a movie and it was over. Yes, you shared about uh, I want to go on the road and do my show and what have you. But I had much more faith in providence about what was going to happen to that's me artistically. That's what I mean.
3: That's what I, I mean. I kind of laid
0: back and I go, well, I'm going to go do a play. I'm going to go do this. And I thought, well, only a fool thinks you can really manage this whole thing and make yourself successful. That's right. Like, that's luck. And i get a script sent to me, and I would evaluate the script based on the instincts I had. And I'd yes. read the script, and I'd go, I don't think this is very interesting. And my agents would call me up and go, hey, man. <laughs> You need to come in here and read the script again in my office. I have a special lamp I have on my desk,
3: uh-huh.
0: and we're going to put that on the script. Uh-huh. And the lamp is a lamp that projects onto each page the amount of money you're going to be paid for this movie, because it's like millions of dollars. And now I feel like people have bought, so many young people, have. they're making movies they don't want to make. They're making yeah. movies they don't even know if they want to make. Them. Right. But they've been sold on the idea that this is the movie they should be doing to, to right. stiffen their career.
3: Right. Well, also, there's there's so many films now that are, you know, that are the big, you know, um, either sci-fi or, you know, or the Marvel. superhero. It's just, it's a different time. It'll never be what it was <clears throat> in the 80s and 90s. Let's
0: face it, though. You and I, we'd chop one of our hands off to be one of these Marvel movies. You, you know well, that. Well, I yeah.
3: think, I, I, and I think we'd both be great. I mean, I think I'd be a great kind of evil su- superhero, superhero. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so then I, after that, I you know, I did, I did a little bit of television, I did a little bit of film, and then I did a lot of performing. And then I sort of, you know, really broke out as a live performer. I did my first one-woman show here in New York, Without You, I'm Nothing, which was legendary right. and became an actual film. Not like a special, but we made it into a film that was quite interesting, and you can still see it. Um, and it was sort of like a breakthrough performance film that a lot of people— Try to emulate and copy, because it was wasn't just. How did that like, come about? Well, I was collaborating at the time with this um, this artist named John Boscovich. He had directed the show, the live show, and then somebody gave him the, gave us the money for him to direct the movie. And Nick Rogue, who I'd done a film with uh, called Track Twenty Nine, he was the executive producer on it. And he just sat on the set and kind of oversaw you know the shots and everything. And we turned it into this sort of like um, very very crazy commentary on performance films it was sort of like you know kind of went in on itself and nobody had ever seen anything like it and so that kind of established me in a whole other way too and that you know that was a great stepping stone for me in terms of like being you know an iconic live performer and that's kept me going throughout the years when other things weren't happening.
0: Coming up, Bernhard talks activism and empathy and why she never wanted to be the poster girl for just one cause. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where you can hear my conversation with another iconic New York artist.
1: I was an attention getter, but I didn't want to be Eve Arden. I really didn't. Okay,
0: okay, that's a good point. Why?
1: Well, because I don't want to be a funny girl that's just cracking wisecracks or staying up with the uh, you know with the rollers in her hair yeah
0: take a listen to elaine stritch at heresthething.org
4: mom met a lot of your demands over the years this mother's day get her the bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand
1: it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
0: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm retired from a life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger, and we want to feel as if anything could happen gray is invited to drive for this man he's invited to make money and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do i did what you told me to and he's in a world over his head now let's go he will try to do what's right and seek justice parish all new sundays at 9 on amc and stream on amc plus This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Sandra Bernhard got her start in comedy clubs in the 1970s, but she quickly moved on to television and movies. And today, she still performs live regularly. She doesn't prefer one form over the other.
3: Well, I think everything feeds off of the other. I mean, you know, if you're not if you're not on television, you're not doing films, it it doesn't support your live performing. You got to have a certain amount of exposure, and it's also good to mix it up and be collaborative and not always depending on your own, you know, creative source, which sometimes you need a break from that because you can't, I mean, you know, writing a show, writing material it's 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 a big undertaking. You can't always. I witnessed
0: that. Other people. I, I, I didn't <laughs> do it, but when I worked with Tina, I mean, yeah, you know, I witnessed you that. know? It's enervating.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, I'm sure that. I'm sure that show was. I mean, that's a whole different ball game.
0: Well, that was you know, it was her producing and writing I and know. head writing and starring. Unbelievable.
3: So she was exhausted. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. But but,
0: but uh, you know, great. Uh, you know, the results were great for yeah. her and for everybody at, uh, yeah. in the end. You left L.A. And when you left LA, you moved to New York? That was where you I were?
3: never, I mean, for, for years, I just went back and forth. Back and forth. I kept, my, I kept a house out in LA in the Valley. When well, you got your
0: first home here, where in the Valley?
3: North Hollywood.
0: Are on you, Blix,
3: right? on Blix, between yeah, Kling and Klump, off of Riverside. <laughs> my little Spanish bungalow that I bought in
0: 1986. For like $40.
3: Just about $140,000. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. I lived in the valley. Where'd you live? I lived up above Taft High School in Woodland Hills with uh-huh. my ex-wife. I was there for 10 years. That I was with my ex-wife, with her and married to her. And then uh, for about seven years, a little bit after I was divorced, I went back there and rented a house around the corner from them. So if my daughter forgot something, which was very common, she could go back home and get it.
3: The valley is, has its... it's
0: just, I like... Do you like the valley?
3: I love the valley. You do. Yeah.
0: What do you like about the valley?
3: It feels like you're just somewhere else.
0: I it's like not, the valley because it's just unpretentious. Yeah,
3: that's what I mean. It's not L.A. It's not...
0: You drive down the boulevard and all that shitty architecture. Uh, it's wonderful. It's... You, just, Wonder- you, you become comforted
3: Yeah, you, because you don't feel like you have to I mean, come up, you know, you don't have to rise up to anything. There is no, there is no pretense in the valley.
0: Let's do our valley. Let's, let's valley off right now. Where would you go? Where would you go?
3: Well, back then, I mean, you know, there's um, uh, Jinkies. Jinkies. For breakfast. Yeah. They're mainly breakfast breakfast. (laughs) places.
0: Yeah, breakfast places. CC's Pancakes on the boulevard over near Encino. Yes. Iroha for sushi over there by uh, uh, Coldwater Canyon.
3: Right. Well, like New York, like any place. But New York, you can get quicker, you know, to... You know, if you want to go for Italian, there's, you know, you can go downtown, go uptown, you can stay midtown. I mean, there's a million places to go. But L.A., it's like, you know, it's a big
0: schlap. Well, as my friend Ken Page told me, the great Ken Page, who worked on Broadway forever and Cats and different shows like that, Ken Page said to me, he said, uh, he said, New York is a river and L.A. is a lake. He said in New York, you step out the door, and there's a current that pulls you in a certain direction. You just go if you're walking down the street with your friend smoking a cigarette down Columbus Avenue, you're doing something
3: and you will you'll, you'll certainly land and you're somewhere, end up else. somewhere he yeah. said,
0: and you'll land somewhere he says l a you got to put your oars in the water and row and, and row like, and, a, and, and, and,
3: and <laughs> like a son
0: of a gun to the where you want to go. you have to make plans, yeah tests friendships,
3: yes, so you know, so I never really left l a until I guess until my daughter was, you know, five or six, and it was school became more serious, and then we stayed here most of the time.
0: Now, you are you married?
3: No, I'm. Yeah. No, I'm essentially, but you essentially. Know, my girlfriend and I. Are, she's your partner. She's my
0: oh, very much so. And and she's someone who, if I read. Her bio, correctly. She basically did one show. Did she do the show with you? Does she continue to write, or she's not writing anymore?
3: She writes, but she never, she's never written. We've written. We've written scripted projects for TV, but to no avail so far. But
0: she worked with you, didn't she? No. No. Okay. No. No.
3: I met her. I met her when she was working at. Um, Harper's bizarre. I thought
0: she wrote a show on IMDb. It's that she did like the Sandra Bernhardt experience or something. Oh
3: no, she that was my, my short lived talk show on A E and right. she she was she was on it as my sidekick. <laughs> she didn't know how the hell she ended up there. She was like, if this, if this show gets picked up, I'm not doing this anymore. She's a very, she's from St. Louis. She's no nonsense. She's like she's not she's not in it to you know, for the for the fame or the, the, the attention. She's just the opposite, which is so refreshing.
0: You first got your first home here when?
3: Um, well, we bought our place in 2000 in um, West Chelsea.
0: What's changed for you um, about New York?
3: Well, I mean, it's home now, for better or for worse.
0: But since 2000, which is 16 years ago, obviously, yeah. what's changed?
3: Um, emotionally or the city? It, well, the it. city is, you know, as you, as we all know, it's become sort of a hackneyed conversation. Is not the city we all loved in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's heartbreaking. It's, yeah, it's it's lost its um, its um core. You know, it's lost its ability to to welcome people um, who are just starting their careers. They can't you can't afford to live here.
0: You know, years ago there were pockets of communities of affordable housing which were very often uh, uh, utilized by artists. Right, and, and the artistic community here yeah. seems to have left. Slowly, well, whether it's visual artists,
3: well, everybody's left, and I mean, and and you know, yeah, I guess some people moved out to to Brooklyn and, and up Jersey. to Queens, and New Jersey. But you know, if you're starting out and you are like a, literally like a visual artist, like a painter, I think people are going all over the place. They're going to Detroit, they're going to Pittsburgh, they're going down south. You I mean you got to go someplace where there's a community. But where you can afford can to function. live. I mean, you can't, yeah. you got to, if you're painting, you need space. You can't paint in like a, you know, one tiny little room and, and live it, there too.
0: Well, as the city has changed, uh, and hand in hand, obviously, the people who live here has changed. And it's like, that's what I find is that New Yorkers themselves.
3: Yeah. Well, there's still people, changed. you know, there's still people that, you know, had rent control. So there's still, you know, there's still a few of the old. You know, the kind of Woody Allen-esque New Yorkers yeah. that you see that you think, oh, they'd be great in a Woody Allen film, you right. know, like the older Jewish couple or, you know, just the, the, the sort of, you know, interesting, flamboyant people that populated the city when I first used to come here, you know, and now they're... um Less they're, of them. Yeah, you know, and every time one of them sort of leaves or dies, you go, oh, it's, you know... We're closer and closer to... To extinction. To extinction, to creative Mm -hmm. extinction, you know, and and it's, it's, you know, and yet, I don't know, I still prefer living here than L.A. at this point. I love to go to L.A., I like to spend time there. I guess if they called me and said, you're going to come do a TV show in L.A., I'd I'd run as fast as I could, because I want to work, Mm -hmm. and I'd be fine, because I have a lot of friends out there, too, and there's lots of things about L.A. that I still love, but... I don't know. Everything's different. The world's different. We're on the precipice of total craziness. I know. You know, the the Band-Aid's been ripped off the wound. The Republican Party, we see what what people, a big swath of people in this country really feel, the racism, Mm -hmm. the fear the xenophobia, the misogyny, um, on and on and on. Oh, the
0: mourning for a, a, a way of life yeah, in this country that's this ending.
3: That's, that's been ending.
0: American supremacy and the fact that we're going to go into other countries and interfere with their uh, lives and we're going to exert our military power in every corner of the world to to our advantage, to right. our our standard of living, to keep our standard of living. It isn't working anymore.
3: no. It's a time of flux, it's a time of change, and it's a time of, you know, in a certain way of anarchy, you know, on both sides of of the of the of the aisle. And you're not sure how it's gonna all um shake down.
0: Do you write every day or you like I do. to write? You do. Well,
3: especially now that I have my own radio show on on uh i
0: serious. How did that that come about? Um,
3: Andy Cohen got his own channel. It's called Radio Andy, and he asked me if I would do a show every day. And I said, yeah, I'll do it, because, you know, I'm I'm here in the city most of the time, or a lot of the time. And I thought that would be fun, and it's really been great. And it's really been, you know, very, like, I've been... You do a show every day? Do a show five days a week. Live? Live. 12 to 1.
0: Now, do you find you've been very... um... This is such a tired way of putting this. I don't know any other <laughs> way, to put it. but you've been very supportive and very upfront of the LGBT community in your work. And do you find it's like, are you glad you came, uh, you came not came out, but you lived your life bisexually or in whatever, whatever way at the time you did, or yes. do you wish you were here now? No, you don't.
3: No, because I was never. It was never really about that for me. You didn't care. No, I. Of course, I care. I. Care. I want. I want rights for everybody. I want no. everybody who's unique to be comfortable in that setting. So that was always my, from my point of view, like if you are a freak, fly your freak flag and be comfortable be and you. know mm-hmm. that you're going to be fine because I can't always hold your hand through it because I, I was of the belief in the LGBTQ thing really blew up. It was like, kids, we all have to buck up, you know? We all have to be... Soldiers, we all have to be more. You like you were there,
0: you like that you were there for the fight, so to speak.
3: No, because I wasn't there for the fight. Oh, I I mean, no, I believe that if the fight's an individual fight, and I'm not this is this is like a whole you know, this is a very I'm just paring it down. Of course, I stand in solidarity to, to everybody, you know, and that goes for everybody who deserves support. But what I'm saying for myself personally, I never needed that, I wasn't like you know, validate me, accept me, I'm, I am i don't feel comfortable. I was always comfortable in my own skin. And I liked who I was. And it was, I didn't define myself by my sexuality. I defined myself by my desires and my imagination and all the things that looked, you know, like a buffet. I like a buffet. I don't like one dish. So, you know, sometimes I was dating boys. Sometimes I was dating girls. When I first moved to L.A., and then over the years, I had you know I had relationships, but I was always just like eh, whatever. I was into my career. I wanted to have fun. So until I met my my present um, girlfriend Sarah, who's amazing, and she wouldn't take it any other way because she's you know she doesn't she doesn't take any prisoners and she shouldn't. Um, but she's also like she's like this is how it is. The world needs everybody needs to buck up, get tough. So I've just never been one to like oh my god, let me hold your hand. Oh boy, baby, sweetheart. You know, it's like, and I understand some people are born into circumstances if you're transgender or you've been thrown out of your home because you're gay. It is the worst possible thing in the world. And of course I have wells of empathy and I've done, you know, and I will do and I have done benefits to raise money to be there and I'm a, a vocal spokesperson. But I also see people on the train. I see, you know, people of color. I see old people. I see all kinds of people who are just barely hanging on. So my empathy is like from one end to the rainbow to the next, and it's never been specifically LGBT. It's like, we're all in this fucked up soup together, and everybody who doesn't have enough is suffering. So you gotta spread the shit around, and you gotta spread the empathy, and you gotta also say to those who are a little bit like, take care of me. Like, Okay, you gotta take care of yourself right now. I'll circle back to you when I have time. I'm over here right now trying to help You know, this person. Cause it's just there's too much going on.
0: What was it like for you being a mom and raising your daughter?
3: Amazing. Well, you know, also we're, we're it's a rarefied atmosphere. You know, we have help. We have people that are there. Yeah. You know, we have a support system.
0: People have full lives.
3: Yeah, I yeah. got, got you to keep, to got to keep working.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. But
3: um, it was um, <clears throat> it was a leap of faith for me. I mean, it wasn't like I was like I didn't grow up thinking oh I've got to have a kid. But suddenly, like when I was 40, I said, I think I just better do this because I think I'm going to regret it. And I would have regretted it. And it's a work in progress. I mean, you know, you have an older kid. And I'm sure that there are times when she still calls on you and you're like, uh, because
0: you want want them to just. That's what I'm going to do now. From now on, when Ireland calls me, my daughter, if you're listening, I'm going to call her after this is over. I'm going to say. Ireland, when you call, I'm going to go, uh... I'm going to imitate you. Uh,
3: <laughs> but sometimes, you know, well, my it's daughter... It's like Ross Chast. Ee! Yeah, exactly. My daughter just started college, so I can't... I mean, of course, she's still a baby. You what know? does she want to study? If she wants to write television. She wants to write comedy.
0: Don't name the school, but is she go to East Coast, West East, Coast? East. Small.
3: Liberal arts. Great college. Cool. She got in. She did it. That's cool. So, that's cool. you know, I got no complaints.
0: Now, um... You ever thought about doing a drama, like a one-hour drama, or is that uh, too much work? Those y- are long I'm, hours. I'm you ready,
3: know. honey. You, what, you got something in mind for me? Call me up.
0: I think I do, actually.
3: Call me. I'm yeah. ready to go to work tomorrow. We have tomorrow. something
0: that's in infancy of I'm ready to go right. to
3: work tomorrow. I'll work the long hours. It'll up. be in New York. Be, honey? Hallelujah! <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there with bells on.
0: Speaking of being there with bells on, you are at the sorting room at the Wallace. It's called the Wallace. Wallace
3: Annenberg. Performing Arts Center in Beverly Hills, December eighth, 9th, 9th, and tenth. Two shows a night, and then I'll be back here. It's called Sandra Monica Boulevard, coast to coast. Sandra I'll get Monica. back in my car, drive back to New York. Joe's Pub. You drive? No. Oh. Joe's.
0: It's well, the me. romance
3: of it. Yeah. Joe's Pub, December twenty-sixth through New Year's Eve. It's my 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 holiday tradition. Two shows a night, twelve shows, six nights. I take no prisoners, we kick ass, we have a ball, I collapse at the end, and it's a new year.
0: I'm going to ask my wife, now here's a real thing I got going on, my wife is... What you would call a queer, deer. She's encrusted in gay men. All her friends are gay men. <laughs> so we're going to bring a whole gang of them. Please maybe do. New Year's yes,
3: Eve. Yes, yes. Come in their jock straps.
0: Is that what people do? They do. Is there like a thing? Is there a thing? No. No, oh, is that a theme?
3: No, there's no theme.
0: Okay. Oh, I thought maybe it was like a really cool. Like... No,
3: but I like it if, I, if some drag queens still come dressed, you know, in full regalia like they used to in the old days maybe to, I'll to pay do homage. That.
0: Maybe I'll pay homage.
3: I don't, I don't think I want to see you in drag. You don't no, want to see me dressed like no. Vidal
0: Sassoon, like a little white, cream-colored nameless no, jacket? No, that I
3: wouldn't mind. <laughs> just don't, just don't wear a wig. Don't
0: wear a wig, okay. please. No, I beg I of you. No, no, no. Um, thank you for
3: ah, doing this. What a pleasure.
0: Sorting room at the Wallace Annenberg in Beverly Hills, December eighth, ninth, and tenth, and December twenty-sixth through New Year's Eve at Joe's Pub.
3: Yeah,
0: That's rocking, so...
3: rolling, kicking ass.
0: Can't wait. Still
3: loving it. I'll see you on the set of your new show. <laughs> by the way.
0: We're gonna be paying prosecutors.
3: Ah! Oh, honey! Woo!
0: Sandra Bernhard, she'll be performing live later this year. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
2: Right Rug Flooring.